Um, thank you all for having me. Uh, I always like having my bio read before I talk. You know, it gives me that nice boost of confidence right before I, right before I start. Um, this paper is, in a lot of ways, born out of a, uh, the book that's coming out in six weeks on international regulatory regimes and the extent to which uh, great powers will manipulate uh, various regimes in order to get the outcomes that they want. And, you know, to – hold on, let me make sure I've got this right. Good. Um, if you take a look, you know, historically, there's been a proliferation of global governance structures, however you want to define them. Uh, over the past uh, 20 year, uh, 30 years in particular. Um, whether or not you're talking about formal international organizations or informal international bodies or multilateral treaties or just international law, there's been an overall proliferation. Um, and if you take a look at, you know, arguments made within uh, international law or, for that matter, from liberal, liberal, liberal institutionalists within IR theory and liberal internationalists within sort of U.S. foreign policy writ large, this is seen as an unambiguously good thing. The idea that there's more proliferation of law will generally lead to a more rule-based world. Now, within um, international relations, this has led to a lot of interesting work because, you know, it used to be that the problem was how do you create international cooperation, how do you start uh, or initiate international cooperation from a world of anarchy. That doesn't seem to be the problem anymore. As a result, there's been a lot of new interesting work, um, work on nested and overlapping institutions, which Karen Alter and Sophie Munier have started, uh, and they're presumably, I think, working towards an edited volume on this topic. Um, the stuff on regulatory networks that Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, Wolfgang Reinecke, and others have worked on, and this is sort of also, also resides in Princeton, actually, come to think of it. Um, and kind of the Princeton Project's work. Uh, regime complexes. Uh, this is Cal Rastiala and David Victor's uh, really, really, really good I.O. piece, I think, in 2004, pointing out that there are different regimes that will uh, conflict with each other or occasionally complement each other. And work on form shopping, and I'll, you know, put my book up there as well. Again, forthcoming from Princeton University Press, six weeks, you know. You can order now if you want to, though. Um, the argument I want to make here is that for all the, the you know, potential benefits of institutional proliferation, I think that institu institutional proliferation can lead to less rule-based governance as opposed to more rule-based governance. Um, and the reason is, is because as you have an increasing number of international regimes, international organizations, and so on and so forth, it allows great powers to manipulate rules or choose certain fora with which they want to go forward in terms of their international policies. And it actually gives them more latitude than you would have if there were more coherent international regimes. Now, that said, and I'll make the sort of arguments for why I think this is true in a, uh, in a little bit, I do think there's a caveat to this. I do think it's possible that there might be institutions whereby the cost of form shopping becomes so high that, in fact, even if there is institutional proliferation, it doesn't matter as much. And the term I use to describe this is viscosity. Um, and for those of you old enough in the audience, I came up with this viscosity thing because there was that old ad that Mobile Gasoline used to do um, with Eli Wallach as the voice talking about how mobile, you know, gasoline promotes viscosity, you know, which prevents thermal breakdown. And I don't know why, but in my head that word sort of, you know, uh, got lodged. But viscosity in terms of fluid mechanics is the internal friction of a fluid. The, the more viscous a fluid is, um, you know, the sort of thicker it is, and therefore it's tougher to move. If there's less viscosity... That means that, um, you know, it's much easier uh, for the fluid to uh, change shape or for any object to change shape. 
So what I'm talking about here in terms of global governance is that high viscosity in global governance means that it's very difficult for states to manipulate rules or to move from one fora to another, to move from, let's say, the WTO to the Cartagena Protocol, if you're talking about genetically modified organisms, or to move from the International Monetary Fund to the Financial Stability Forum, if you're talking about financial codes and standards. That would be a very viscous regime. Less viscosity implies, low viscosity implies that lots of form shopping can take place. So that said, that can be a caveat. If there's high viscosity, it's possible that institutional proliferation does not necessarily lead to less rule-based outcomes. But I think, you know, the argument I'm going to make is that over time, viscosity is always low. That although there might be moments where governance structures are actually relatively rigid, that even in the medium to longer term um, on important issues, viscosity breaks down, as Eli Wallach put it. All right, to talk about this, you've got to go back to the old debate from about 20 years ago. And a lot of you in the audience look young enough so that you're not going to be you know, traumatized by going over this stuff again, um, about why institutions in theory mattered. Um, and there was a large debate in the 80s between realists and institutionalists over whether or not the creation of international institutions, the creation of international regimes, actually had an effect, an independent effect, on, global, on um, outcomes in world politics. The arguments that institutionalists made were pretty simple. Institutions facilitated cooperation through a number of means, one of which was they constructed focal points. All right, and this comes from Tom Schelling's old notion and strategy of conflict, the idea that the problem might not necessarily be a question of states wanting to cooperate, but cooperating at what point, under what set of rules. Um, and one of the things that institutions can do is set out a clear set of norms such that it creates convergent expectations among actors saying, yes, we're going to cooperate at point X. Furthermore, institutions in theory lower monitoring costs to determine whether or not states are actually complying with the rules. The idea is that if there's a clear and coherent regime out there, it'll be easy to detect whether or not states are in compliance or not. And this might vary from issue area to issue area. Some would, dispute, you know, would talk about this. But at least in theory, the mere existence of a regime and the mere existence of a clear set of rules also made it easy, you know, at least observable, whether or not a state was complying or not. And so the idea is that this leads to a shift from a Hobbesian to a Lockean kind of world a shift from a world where you know, it's unclear if there's going to be adherence to any kind of rules to ones where even if there are occasional breakdowns, you're thinking that there's an international society as opposed to a you know, purely Hobbesian uh, arrangement. Now, I think this argument you know, sort of within the field actually had an effect. I think if you take a look and go back over this literature, the debate between realists and institutionalists, with the possible exception of John Mearsheimer, even you know, most realists accepted in the end that, yes, the institutionalists had a point that if you actually created you know, institutions, um, that it would lead to certain changes in behavior. Uh, that even you know, someone like, let's say, Randy Schweller, you know, acknowledged that, yes, at some level, there has to be some degree of cooperation you know, to talk about even simple things like language. Um, but that over time, institutions can congeal, and that lead to sort of you know, common sets of expectations. And there are obvious examples where you see where a state would consider violating um, an international regime or the rules of international organization, and chose not to do it because they thought the costs of defection were too great, even though it was in their short-term interest. You know, the cases I talk about in the paper, when the Clinton administration considered whether or not they should have to adhere to a NATO plan to bail out peacekeepers in Bosnia, um, the idea of going against NATO seemed too high. Even the Bush administration, not really considered a paragon of multilateralism, you know, agreed in the end to adhere to the WTO steel, the, WTO ruling on steel tariffs and comply with that rule. Okay. The problem is, is that the old realist institutional debate 
started with the assumption of you're in a world of anarchy, how do you get to a world of cooperation? But the world has changed now. The problem we've now got is that it's not just a question of how do you get to create a single institution, what do you do in a world with multiple institutions? What do you do in a world where there are multiple regimes, some of which will overlap in terms of issue areas or overlap in terms of intentions? All right. The argument I make is that there are four reasons why you would ex expect to see institutional proliferation after a certain point actually lead to less adherence to rules. The first is, and most obviously, you've got a proliferation of focal points. As you create new international institutions, and they might be created for a variety of reasons, and we can talk about this in the Q&A, um, you're going to see a proliferation of focal points. But by definition, focal points have to be few in number. Otherwise, they don't work as focal points. All right, the original idea of a focal point was you know, if you had to meet someone in New York, you know, on a certain day, how and when, you know, where and when would you meet them? Well, the idea is that you would meet them at noon in Grand Central Station because that seemed relatively obvious. But if it turns out there are other, you know, obvious sites, the Empire, you know, or the, the Empire State Building, Penn Station, the Statue of Liberty, and so on and so forth, suddenly the likelihood that you're going to meet that other person might, you know, be reduced. A focal point has to be, there can't be that many of them within a game. Otherwise, it becomes impossible to coordinate action. At the same time, states that are going to consciously manipulate the proliferation of fora will also make it difficult for other states to detect whether or not they're defecting from previously agreed arrangements. So in this situation, for example, if the United States, let's say, violates um, you know, a WTO ruling, they could in theory claim, well, no, we're not violating the WTO ruling. We're adhering to the NAFTA ruling you know, on this exact same issue. And in fact, they've actually done that uh, on an issue near and dear to Canadians' hearts, softwood lumber, um, where the Canadians potentially screwed up by deciding in the end that they were going to you know, litigate this issue in every single four that they shared with the United States. So they went to the WTO. They went to NAFTA. I think they went to no one other body, but I can't remember. They won all of the rulings except for one in NAFTA. And in the end, what the U.S. position has been is, well, we have to comply with the NAFTA ruling. You know, which is not terribly shocking. But the point is, states can claim, instead of defecting from regime A, that they're actually complying with regime B. And so if they create more and more institutions and more and more organizations, it's going to be easier, frankly, for states, particularly great powers, to argue, look, we're complying with at least one regime out there, so don't tell us we're not complying with others. Third, and related to this, is that there creates a weakening of legal obligation. The notion, and you know, this has been put forward in the legalization volume that I owe, said that what legalization does is create a sense of obligation that they have to comply with international law, and if they don't, there are costs to that. If, however, the law becomes increasingly complex, if it becomes unclear how you define defection you know, from international law, if there's multiple overlapping legal regimes, and because there's no hierarchy of international law, I mean, there is the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, but even that, according to international lawyers, doesn't really put in hard and fast rules about which law supersedes other forms of law. Then there's no hierarchy. Then in the end, the, the arbitration, the way to decide whether or not one set, which set of rules will be complied with, in the end sort of devolves back to power. And so in that sense, I would argue the obligation that even the great powers would feel gets diluted over time. And finally, there's also an increase in complexity in terms of Adherence. Um, and this is a material argument, which simply says, as you create more fora, as you create more adjudicating bodies, as you create more you know, areas where there are sort of joints between regime complexes or 
conflicting interpretations of law and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, you need to hire more lawyers then. You need to hire more technical experts. You need a lot more skilled human capital in order to be able to determine if you're going to pursue your country's interests, how can you do that in a complex legal world. That takes money. Now, it's money that from the United States perspective might seem perfectly trivial, but from, let's say, the perspective of Guatemala is going to be relatively significant. And so as a result, for developing countries, it's going to be increasingly costly in a complex world to figure out how to navigate it. And so in the end, I argue, that privileges developed countries, most of whom happen to be the great powers at this point. So in the end, the effect of all of these things over time is not to completely vitiate the role of international institutions, but rather in a world where there are competing and overlapping international institutions, power becomes the deciding factor in determining which institutions wind up working and which institutions don't. So in the end, to make it very simple, you know, this is the sort of relationship I'm arguing. I'm arguing it's a parabolic one, which is I'm not saying that institutions don't matter. If you're starting from a world of anarchy and you move forward, the creation of single, very clear international regimes presumably is going to lead to more adherence to order. And I agree with the, lib you know, the liberal institutionalists on that. My point is, after a certain point, there's going to be more and more erosion of adherence to international rules because the proliferation of rules even if they were intended to betray original sets of rules, over time there's simply going to be more and more variety, more and more diversity of rules. And as a result, states, as interests change, can choose to adopt some rules over others. Now, that said, the prediction is very simple. All else equal, institutional proliferation after a certain point will lead to more and more Hobbesian-type outcomes, where power in the end is the ultimate decider as opposed to laws, rules, or norms. Now, I'm not saying by this that, therefore, institutional proliferation is going to lead to a war of all against all. That's not what I mean by Hobbesian. What I mean by Hobbesian is sort of the way Hobbes thought about it, at least if I remember correctly, which is the fact that there was no single overarching set of laws meant that it was always a potential for power to ultimately decide the equation. So that's what I mean here. I'm not saying there's automatically going to be frequent conflict. I'm simply saying that in the end, power is going to be the ultimate decider. And I should point out here when I say this, I'm not denying that you know, liberals, smart you know, liberal institutionalists recognize the role of power in the creation of these rules in the first place often. But the argument was, you know, from liberal institutionalists, was that once these rules were created, they perpetuated themselves over time. And the argument I'm making here is that over time, if you have institutional proliferation, the rules begin to matter less and less. Now that said, there's one caveat. If forum shopping is costly for some reason, if a state suffers from legitimacy costs, let's say from ignoring the UN Security Council, or suffers from legitimacy costs by exiting the WTO or the Non-Proliferation Treaty, or you know some other regime that is considered particularly powerful for some reason, then the effect is mitigated. Can I go back? Yeah, I can. You know, then the effect would be mitigated. Then it would be more like, you know higher up. It would just be sort of a curve, and over time you'd have diminishing marginal returns to institutional proliferation. But it wouldn't lead to a decline and comply with rules. So this leads to the question, what causes viscosity? What causes inter certain international regimes to have close adherence, and what causes others to, on the whole, not have all that much adherence? And I'm not necessarily going to be able to give you an answer. I'm looking forward to hearing some of your answers. Um, the problem here, I think, is that a lot of the existing literature is not that great of a guide, at least the, uh, the sort of IO-style literature, the work on you know, 
rational design and the sort of legalization volume. And the problem is, is one that Jim Fearon identified you know, over a decade ago, is that the factors that lead to cooperation in the first place might be unrelated to factors that constrain institutional choice. In other words, the traditional sort of IR problem we had was how do you cooperate? How do you originally get to the point where there's going to be cooperation? Which is fine. So questions about uncertainty or membership or legalization, for that matter, you know, might all be issues that would affect the degree of cooperation. The problem is, is that once you've got cooperation, it sort of presumes already that you've conquered those problems, that you've conquered those, those variables. And so they're not necessarily going to affect institutional choice. So in the end, I decided to do this more empirically by looking at a case that came up in the book where what I argued, which is that form shopping should take place you know, quite frequently if there's a divergence of interest, doesn't happen, at least initially. I thought if I took a look at the case of uh, TRIPS, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, that it would at least, you know, inductively at least, give me a hint about why was it, you know, when is it that in, you know, form shopping becomes costly. Now, the case involves uh, TRIPS were trade-related intellectual property rights that were set up after the 1994 Uruguay round. Um, both the U.S. and the EU pushed for an enforcement of intellectual property rights with the Uruguay round. They got it. As TRIPS began to be enforced, you know, after 1994, the U.S. in particular was a very eager use, uh, eager advocate for the system. Um, they brought the most cases involving TRIPS violations. Many of those cases were brought about because... Uh, the pharmaceutical lobby claimed that developing countries were using generic versions of their medicine, of patented medicines. So they began to prosecute this. At the same time, you began to see a campaign among global civil society activists like Medicine Sans Frontieres, Oxfam in the United States, ACT UP, arguing that if you actually try to enforce these patents, it's going to make the costs of AIDS drugs in particular, um, HIV drugs, prohibitively expensive for someone living in Mozambique or Brazil or developing country, period. So there began to be an argument that, look, there has to be some sort of carve-out. There has to be some sort of exception to TRIPS in case of medical emergencies. And as a result, there was a lobbying campaign for this that, again, started with global civil society activists, but was picked up by developing states in the late 90s. They did things like picket Al Gore's campaign. Um, they got President Clinton to you know, uh, potentially at least uh, agree that there was an issue to be debated. And they won their real victory um, in 2001 with the Doha Declaration. The Doha Declaration stated explicitly, um, let me see if I can get to the actual quote. Yes. No, no, no. Hold on. Yeah. The key statement was, the TRIPS agreement does not and should not prevent members from taking measures to protect public health. Accordingly, while reiterating our commitment to the TRIPS agreement, we affirm that the agreement can and should be interpreted and implemented in a manner supportive of the WTO members' rights to protect public health and, in particular, to promote access to medicines for all. Now, if you take a look at the negotiating history prior to that declaration being signed, it was clear that neither the U.S. nor Europe really wanted language that broad. That was not what they wanted. Um, the U.S. position, the USTR's position prior to this, was that, in fact, the original TRIPS agreement already <coughs> contained enough flexibility to be able to get access to generic medicines, and therefore there was no need to make any of this really all that explicit. Um, the Europeans were a little more sotto voce about this, in large part because they figured if the Americans are going to stick their neck out, why should we bother you know, taking bad PR for this as well? 
but in the end, their position was roughly similar. But in the end, the Doha Declaration winds up getting agreed to. Now, the question is why. This was a moment where, in theory, the U.S. and the EU either could have blocked what was going on within Doha or even instead decided to set up a new fora or switch fora in terms of dealing with intellectual property rights as a way of preventing the developing countries from having that influence. The argument, if you take a look at the case for why there's no forum shopping, is in part because of what's going on in the fall of 2001 when this is agreed to. All right. There are three things that mattered here. The first was the fact that the WTO as an organization had had a failed summit in Seattle in 1999. And it was very clear that it was the intent of both the U.S. and the EU to make sure that Doha did not wind up failing in the same way. So there had to be at least agreement that there was going to be a trade round launched in, December, in uh, November 2001. And if you take a look at the statements, you can see that that comes up. Second, you also had attack, you know, the September 11th attacks, and Doha was considered the first moment where the United States could sort of say, see, you know, we're still the world leader. We can still move forward in terms of, you know, uh, pushing our agenda of economic globalization. The terrorists, you know, if we, if we don't get Doha, the terrorists win. That was actually, I think, a headline in one of the news stories. And third, and this is important, the developing countries knew this. And so their price for agreeing to go ahead with the Doha round was making it a development round, which included making an agreement on this issue, which was the Doha Declaration. So in the end, the U.S. and the EU agreed to it. And you saw a lot of articles written about the power of global civil society to change norms in a situation where presumably power would have opposed to it. And if the story had ended in 2001, both my book and my argument would have been in very big trouble. What's interesting is what's happened since 2001. Since 2001, you've seen two things by the United, United States in particular. The EU, again, has taken a more passive role, but they haven't really objected to what the U.S. has done either. The first is, is that they've started imposing barriers within the WTO to actually taking advantage of these flexibilities, which is when the Doha Declaration was actually implemented in the TRIPS Accord, it was done so in a way that states have to meet a number of hurdles in terms of paperwork before they can actually implement uh, or use the Doha Declaration waiver in order to get access to medicines. And it's worth noting that no state's really done that. The second thing, and more important, and this is what I talk about uh, in this next section of the paper, is that the U.S. starts signing free trade agreements with a lot of countries. In part, part of Bob Zellick, who was the U.S. trade negotiator at the time, competitive liberalization strategy, saying if we can't move forward on the WTO, we'll sign a lot of free trade agreements. And almost all of these free trade agreements contain what are called TRIPS Plus provisions, provisions that are actually more stringent than the original TRIPS Accord, including things like protection of test data. So, for example, although the original TRIPS says nothing about this, all these FTAs have a provision that says the generic drug manufacturers can't use the test data that the original patenters used to show that the drug was safe to the country that's going to license the drug. So the idea is, let's say Pfizer comes up with a drug that can cure malaria. They go to Mozambique or Uganda and try to get permission to use that drug. They've got to show, obviously, that the drug is safe and doesn't kill people. They'll present the test data. In theory, a generic manufacturer that's producing the, the exact chemical equivalent of that drug could have gone to the government and say, we don't need to test it because it's the exact same thing that Pfizer came up with, so you should be able to license us. The FTA says, no, 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 the test data itself is intellectual property and therefore can't be used by other drug manufacturers. So that extends the, the patent protections even further. 
And there are other related issues like that um, that I talk about in the paper and that are you know, chron uh, chronicled by a lot of NGOs. And so as a result, what you've got a situation now is that even though in 2001 a lot of global civil society was triumphant about the Doha Declaration, you now have groups like Oxfam claiming that basically and admitting that although the, these groups won within the multilateral arrangement of the WTO, they can't stop the FTAs. They can't stop the free trade agreements. You could argue the developing countries themselves could stop signing them, but in the end they see the benefits gained from, you know, economically from an FTA with the United States or a similar one with the European Union as outweighing whatever costs that are imposed um, by, the FT, uh, by the TRIPS Plus provisions. The last thing I'll say about this, and again, this sort of underscores the point about the complexity, is that the United, you know, the United, the USTR response to all this is to always say, all of these FTAs have side letters attached to them saying nothing in this agreement shall be interpreted to conflict with the Doha Declaration. So the USTR's position is, no, 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 we've got this side letter saying there's no conflict. Except, of course, what's in the text actually does somewhat conflict with the Doha Declaration. And if you talk to international lawyers, and I talked to, you know, interviewed USTR officials saying, well, this strikes me as kind of complex. What does it mean? They'll just sort of chuckle because the implication is, is that it is complex. Therefore, the belief is that no developing country is going to try to risk the FTA by trying to honor what's said in the side letter. So, again, this is a situation where power matters. So the lessons from this case... The first is, is that the factors that appear to temporarily increase viscosity is the first scope. The fact is, is that the reason the U.S. in the end agrees to these arrangements of the Doha Declaration, the same with the EU, is because it was attached to a trade round, that they weren't going to get the other issues they wanted, non-agricultural market access, services liberalization, unless they agreed to this provision going forward. And that was clearly part of Bob Zellick's logic in the negotiations at Doha in 2001. The second point, and this is a tougher one, and I'm not sure whether this is going to be a useful variable to consider or not, but I think it actually, in talking to, you know, interviewing people, is what they thought mattered, was basically how the great powers viewed the institution in the first place. Did they see it as one that actually generated results to them? Did they see it as a functional institution or as a dysfunctional one? If they saw it as a functional one, if they saw it as one that derived great benefits, then they, did not, they wouldn't necessarily want to form shop as a means of undercutting it at least on an issue that was so obviously and nakedly undercutting it, which is what happens in this case in the fall of 2001. But it's, again, worth noting that they were able to do it later, which leads to the second point. All of these, you know, the factors that you could argue decreased or increased viscosity at the moment of 2001 faded over time. Doha went forward. The 9-11 tax, you know, the memory of the 9-11 tax wore down. The press and other reactions to what was going on also died down. So as a result, the cost of doing this sort of, you know, outside the WTO process of trying to ratchet up intellectual property rights did not rebound against the United States and has had little rebound against the WTO. There's been, there's been some concerns like Bhagwati talking about the spaghetti bowl of trade agreements. So the remaining questions, which I'll hopefully ask for help for you, is, uh, you know, as I look forward on this paper, I'm still not sure whether or not viscosity is a useful concept. This was an odd paper for me because when I started, I was thinking that, you know, it's obvious that you, if you have institutional proliferation, there's going to be problems in terms of forum shopping. As I presented the paper, I began to notice that was not obvious to other people. And so I had to expand on that part of the argument. But that said, if it turns out that viscosity is only an ephemeral quality, 
I'm not sure how useful of a concept of it, uh, it is. And then second, I need to figure out how to at least test the first part of the argument. I mean, I think I'm right theoretically, but it would be nice to sort of have empirical support beyond the, Do the case of the Doha Declaration as well. And with that, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, please tell me who you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mark, uh, so I like the Vitasi idea. Um, but I'm wondering if there might be something that makes it less ephemeral along the line. I mean, your scope issue and the sort of the issue linkage idea, I think, is one way to think about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, it's possible, although I mean, have to. In this, you know, the question is whether or not you're just looking at the Bush administration. But I mean, here's a counterexample to what you're arguing, which would be the nonproliferation regime. You know, certainly the administration had a very strong incentive for trying to bolster any institution that supported the nonproliferation regime. In the end, and I mean, I think this gets gets to both functional and dysfunctional. I think the administration viewed the the NPT and its attendant, you know, regimes as not working. Because Iraq, you know, at least after 1991, seemed to be trying to acquire nuclear weapons. Iran's been doing it. North Korea simply pulled out of the NPT when they, they found it wasn't convenient for them. And as a result, what they've done instead is creating this proliferation security initiative. They've signed this bilateral deal with India, which, you know, has upset a lot of people because it undercuts, again, further weakens the norm of, of the NPT. Now, that's just one case. It might be that you're right in the larger theoretical scheme of things. That's possible. But... It could cut the other way. In, in other words, if they think that an issue is really important over time, that, that it's going to be important in the future, and they take a look at the existing institutions and aren't satisfied with them, that would be the precise moment where you would create a new institution or choose an institution that you would care about a lot or that, that, you know, that, that might be neglected but that you could pump up because you know that this issue is going to be important. So my gut instinct is no, but I mean, I, I, I take the point. In the back? Who are you? Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm Jason Parker. I'm a postdoc fellow. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about this in the paper, but not as much in the presentation as the issue of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not just that nations will form shop because they believe that, you know, self-interestedly have a better chance than form B versus form A. Yeah. But it could be that they could point to an empirical case for the declining legitimacy of one or two of those flows. Non-proliferation non regime is a good example. You could point to, well, there have been visa violations of it, these problems with everything. some kind of criteria for the legitimacy of a forum, right? So we all agree that math is good and, you know, five guys sitting around a bar you know, is, is bad. Right? I say, you see the public opinion polls? Most people think math is bad, actually. Yeah, I mean, this gets, I mean, I t you're right, I talked about this a little bit in the paper. The problem is how you identify sources of legitimacy. I mean, what's interesting actually now, I think, is that it's almost, 
if you talk about to policymakers, and I think even a large, you know, a large number of IR people, the implicit assumption seems to be that well, presumably international regimes that have you know larger membership. I mean, I think legitimacy gets very quickly tied to membership in in conversations about how you operationalize it. Presumably, organizations or regimes that have a greater number of adherents will therefore have greater legitimacy. And as I said in the paper, I don't necessarily think that's true. It might be true. That I think is certainly one factor that can drive legitimacy. But another factor might be on a particular issue whether or not the regime has, you know, large reservoirs of technical expertise or whether the regime has, you know, strong enforcement capabilities. I mean, this is clearly why the WTO, you know, particularly once GAP became the WTO, was perceived as having the best dispute settlement understanding, which is why a lot of issues that previously, including intellectual property rights, that were never considered part of the trade regime, got latched onto the trade regime because the dispute settlement understanding was considered to be very effective. The problem is, I think, and, and you know, furthermore, you, know, if you take a look at uh, Jennifer Mitson's work, for example, discursive um, debate in and of itself can be a legitimating factor, you know, for a particular kind of normal regime. So, I mean, then this, this gets into a much bigger question, which is how do you operationalize legitimacy? And that might be an interesting question to go forward. I, 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 I'd certainly be willing to consider that, but I don't have a, a pat answer, I guess. And I'm not sure how... I'm not sure how you could test for it if the concept is so diffuse that it's impossible to operationalize it. Alex? The EU, I hadn't, I mean, the, I, I, empirically, I take the EU point. That's an interesting one. I guess the way I would, this might have been my own lack of clarity. The way I would put it would be as follows. You're right that there might be adherence to some sets of rules. But let's say, I mean, just, you know, to give an example, let's say you've got an international regime where there's one clear set of rules that guide, you know, or overarching set of norms that guides whatever is going, you know, how it's going to regulate what's going on. Let's say suddenly, for a variety of reasons, you introduce four more regimes, which ostensibly could support the, the first one, but actually have different sets of rules. If a, great, you know, if a state decides, well, I'm only adhering to one of those five sets of rules, on the one hand, yes, they're complying with rules, but you, know, you might want to, if you judge it as percentage compliance, they're complying with fewer sets of rules than exist out there. I guess the, the way I would put it is that it strikes me that it would be better to have fewer rules and more compliance than a proliferating, a proliferating number of rules and states picking and choosing which ones they're going to comply with. Well, that might depend on how much tension there is among the different sets of rules that right. are all speaking to the same issue. And if, there's, if they're contradictory, then I guess your point might be right. But if mm -hmm. there's quite a bit of overlap and then there's some difference, then I'm not sure that it really adds up. It's possible. I would, I would make two points on this. The first is, I mean, and this goes back to, you know, the sort of realist point, which is it's possible that states' interests change over time. So even if there is, let's say, a tension in, in the proliferation of rules that hasn't been exploited yet, it could be exploited in the future. So that's one possibility. The second problem is that even if there's a well-intentioned effort to try to you know, promulgate new rules that you know, back up old norms, in part because there are so many differences within the domestic you know, legal structures and domestic norms, 
the rules that wind up getting promulgated might occasionally conflict with each other. I mean, a good example of this is the, um, is the promotion for international labor standards and international human rights. You know, if you take a look at the sort of international regime, there's ostensibly the UN, you know, the UN human rights treaties, but, you know, the, the evidence suggests that adherence to those is pretty weak. In the end, what you've seen the U.S. and the EU do is, again, through free trade agreements and through other, you know, uh, um, through bilateral investment treaties, attach certain labor provisions to those agreements. Now, that would be seen as an example, potentially, where the great powers were promoting a single norm and it would presumably complement each other. Except if you actually take a look at the content, and this goes to Emily Hafner Burton's work, the content of the rules that are being pushed forward are different. The EU has wound up pushing forward human rights rules, whereas the United States has pushed forward core labor standards. And it's not even core labor standards because the United States itself hasn't ratified, you know, various important ILO conventions. So it winds up being, you know, the U.S. version of it is you will adhere to your own labor laws. Now, on the one hand, I think, you're, you know, it's true that sometimes, the, you know, the proliferation of rules can betress each other. I think the point I'm trying to make here is that's not always the case, and even if it's intended to be the case, over time it might not be. That would be the way I would I would put it. Yep. Um, Sarah hey, Sarah. No. First of all, it's funny. I never thought about, I, I mean, maybe this is um, implicit in what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad thing that's what's going on, you know, the institutional proliferation. I'm just saying that the way that liberals originally conceived of institutional proliferation is not necessarily going to play out the way they think it is. So I don't want to necessarily go to the, to the normative point of saying this is bad, 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 because I, you're right. I mean, you might argue from a Hayekian sense local knowledge matters, and so you want to have, you know, variation of rules within, uh, you know, to vary with circumstances. That said, though, you know, the argument I would make is that great powers are going to be able to engage in these kinds of strategies to a much greater extent than, develop, than, than weaker countries. And so in the end, there is a shift, and this is why I'm sort of making the Hobbesian point. I think in the end that all states can do this. And in fact, you know, you can see evidence of weaker states trying to create new fora as a way of, you know, or reviving old ones as a way of um, trying to promote their own sets of rules. The problem is, is that if you've got a world of multi, you know, clashing rules, what in the end is the ultimate arbiter to decide whether or not you know, certain sets of rules are going to trump over other sets of rules? And there I think you, have to wind up, you wind up going back to the, real, you know, the realist world where it's going to be relative power. It might be the case that you know, 
the great powers don't care, let's say, how you know, West Africa regulates within its own region. But the moment it becomes a dispute between a West African state and you know, a more powerful state, in a world where there's rule proliferation, I think it's the more powerful state that gets what it wants. So in the end, I guess my, the point I would argue is that over time, in the end, because you've got rule proliferation, power winds up seeping back into the equation, which in theory, institutions were supposed to constrain. It's an interesting argument to argue that there's a competition effect that would cause rules, you know, rules to be improved over time. Let me give you a rent-seeking response, I think, which is if you're, let's say you're the head of a, a particular secretariat of an, uh, you know, an organization and you notice that, gee, there seem to be a proliferation of these kinds of you know, organi- you know, organizations, what's the best way you can guarantee that your organization is going to triumph in the end? Presumably it's going to be that you're going to cater to the most powerful members you know, of your organization are the most powerful members that are wavering in terms of which way they're going to go. So it's not necessarily there would be competition because that's not, it's not, I don't think the market metaphor works as well here. Um, In the end, what you're going to have is a situation where the secretariats that want to survive are going to in the end choose particular states that are going to be able to confer upon them, you know, legitimacy through power. And so as a result, you might have a situation in the reverse where you've got a lot of different four trying to please particularly more powerful states, you might have a few that wind up balancing against it. But I'm not sure the competition effect would work. There's another you know, parallel version of this, which I didn't put in the paper, but what I uh, forgot to put in the paper, but I should, which is this argument has also been made about um, corporate codes of conduct um, and private orders. The idea is that you can have a whole market for standards out there for things like labor and so on and so forth. For example, Kim Elliott and, and Richard Freeman, who's an economist, have talked about the proliferation of these sorts of corporate codes of conduct and labor standards, saying, you know, competition is a good thing. You know, in the end, we'll, you know, we'll see better labor standards. But if you actually take a look at the empirical literature, um, you're starting to see a healthy skepticism about these sorts of things. Because it turns out that what corporations do is pick the set of standards that cause them to have to make the fewest adjustments possible. Um, and so in the end, it's a rather cynical, exer- you know, potentially cynical exercise in you know, corporations not doing anything and just waiting for a standard to come to them rather than vice versa. But I think, I mean, that should go in the paper. I haven't said that, and I think that's a fair point. Uh, yeah. Uh, Tarek, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> moment 
in, yeah. in world politics. Viscosity didn't come from the institutions or the corporation of institutions, uh, but they came, but it comes from things that had to do outside of. And I wanted to sort of expand on your mm -hmm. list a bit, because your list of why the great powers got themselves into this trouble at Doha had to do with great power kind of things. But one could argue that Doha was the last gasp of the 1990s anti-globalization movement, that this is the forces that fought the battle of Seattle, and here was their last gasp before they're overtaken by 9-11. <coughs> Secondly, uh, it has been argued, I think, quite effectively that the negotiating tactics of the global south at Doha were uniquely effective and efficient at Doha. Uh, that's the Amrita Narwakar argument. Um, and that this played into, in, into why it is that we got the Doha de Declaration. And finally, going back to the legitimacy issues, but in a slightly different way, uh, TRIPS is one of those moments when a free market ideology really vulnerable to sort of basic yeah. claims of, of human values. I mean, this was a, a unique weak spot, um, arguing you know, mass death and disease against the interests of pharmaceutical companies. It doesn't play well in the newspapers. Now, that moment passes. Mm -hmm. Those social forces are now busy fighting, uh, have become an anti-war movement, and worrying about the war on terror and the US and Iraq, and so on, are not focused on um, globalization issues in the way they were in the 1990s. Now, all of these things uh, sit outside of this business of the proliferation of fora and rules. Mm. And, and I, have, I think that might be why it is that viscosity, in a sense, appears appended to your main argument. Um. I like the idea that we invaded Iraq to distract the anti-globalization <laughs> groups from trips. That's a, that's a new theory, and I'm going to have to, you know, Put that down. I actually think Paul Krugman said something. He wasn't talking about trips, but he was talking about something else, implying we evaded a rock to sort of, you know, distract people's attention from something else. Um, I take I take your point about that. Actually, I mean, you know, you're making a larger point, which is an interesting one, which is when I talk about viscosity, it's all about internal frictions or not. And what seems to be causing the viscosity is not necessarily internal. It's external. Um, and that's a problem. Although I would say that it was internal in one sense, which is, these, these anti-globalization groups, you know, were bringing up this issue before Doha. It was the fact that at Doha they were launching a trade round. And the launching of a trade round is the one moment, or appeared to be the one moment when you actually had cross-issue linkage. And I think that's one thing that did matter, and that was why all of this, you know, came up at that point. I mean, what's interesting is that even though both pre-Doha and post-Doha, you've seen the U.S. push, you know, against, you haven't seen a lack of compliance with the dispute settlement understanding or, you know, it hasn't occurred to developing countries to link this issue, you know, in other aspects of the WTO. And so I do think that the, I, the notion of the negotiating round, and I think, you know, Christina Davis, for example, has done some work on this also, was, you know, was internal to the WTO. But I think as I push forward, you're right. I mean, I've got to look at this a little more, um, a little more carefully uh, in terms of, you know, other empirical cases, looking at the internal, distinguish between internal forces for viscosity and external. But I do think one thing that was internal was the extent to which, you know, you had these outside, you had the exogenous shocks of both Seattle and 9-11. But internally what mattered was how did the U.S. and the EU view the WTO as an institution when they came up against this sort of, you know, Hobson's choice of do we go forward or do we wreck the Doha, you know, do we decide to wreck Doha? And in that sense I think it did matter, you know, that was internal to the institution. It was how was the WTO perceived by these actors? Um, the problem is, is that's incredibly hard to code, or incredibly hard. It, it winds up looking like, you know, um, it's hard to develop an operationalization of that sort of measure that doesn't seem just like a, you know, a tautology. 
And so that's the problem I've got going forward. Jennifer? Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this before, and I, I mean, I, you're right in that I might be I might be making it too stark, and I might have to change the word Hobbesian because I think you know the problem is that it, it's partly a question of language. And, I mean, to be fair, you know, and I go back to this diagram, I'm not saying that institutional proliferation automatically leads to less rule-based outcomes. I'm saying that after a certain point, it's going to um, because of the, the reasons that I, I list. But to talk specifically about the TRIPS case, you're right. It, you know, the U.S. first best outcome would have been to have TRIPS, would have been the status quo, would not have been to have the Doha Declaration. So in some sense, they've got a second best outcome. But I would actually argue, and this would be an interesting question, is whether or not global civil society recognized what the implications were going to be of what they did in 2001. In other words, there are some long-term, really just, you know, problematic implications for their strategy as well, which is as they try to push for changes in rules and what they can perceive to be pivotal institutions, the response by great powers has simply been, fine, we will find other ways, other new institutions through which we can advance our interests. And so as a result, I mean, this is sort of a point I made in the 2007 book. The notion, you know, the global civil society has always said, oh, we need to get in the green room. You know, we need to get within the room where, you know, the, the powers that be decide these things. I, my conclusion, which might be somewhat depressing if you're a global civil society activist, is you're never going to get into the ultimate green room. Because if you get into one green room, they're just going to move down the hall and create a new green room within a new institution. And I think one of the interesting questions is whether or not the actions of the U.S. and others in terms of trying to create these new FTAs, in the end, and this is Jagdish Bhagwati's argument, he thinks it undercuts the WTO writ large because now suddenly the U.S. can be seen as walking away from the WTO. Something that's interesting that's going to happen now is this business that, you know, Andrea Merkel, for example, just proposed this, you know, grand um, transatlantic, not a free trade area, but a transatlantic, you know, area that would potentially harmonize things like services uh, regulation, investment codes, and so on and so forth. That, I think, is, you know, in part happening because both the U.S. and the EU see the Doha round and see working through other multilateral fora as becoming too cumbersome. So on the one hand, I think you're right. I need to address the fact that, you know, this, the final outcome for the U.S. was the second best outcome. But I also think this final outcome was a maybe fourth or fifth best outcome for the, the global civil society groups that originally wanted to change the rules in the first place because they didn't see over time that the rules might become increasingly irrelevant. Daniel. Um, all the examples, I haven't read the paper, so I'm short of examples. But what you have mentioned so far, it seems like uh, it's always a more multilateral universal rule 
Yeah. by a more specific one. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit like the contrast between multilateralism and bilateralism. Mm -hmm. But if that's the case, then there's another story that would work as well, which is that uh, um, you know, uh, uh, multilateral agreements are nice and fine, but in the end, a lot of the compliance is done by the great powers through regional or bilateral agreements. And uh, you know, when the European Union signed an agreement with uh, Senegal telling them, you know, let's trade this, and by the way, you should abide by human rights, right. which you should, because it was signed in part of the UN, but you know, you're forgotten about it. Let's not put that in a bilateral agreement. This is the way compliance, you know, this is the way these unique multilateral rules are being uh, enforced by the action, more specific action of these great powers. So what basically, in a sense, if I, if I could amend my story by saying what's going on is that all these multilateral rules that actually don't have the full support of the great powers are found not to be implemented differently, you know, on a bilateral or, or, or regional fashion. And so in a sense, what we are seeing is that there are two types of rules. Rules that have the support of the great powers mm -hmm. and those that don't, but to which they agreed to, but knowing that they would do nothing to implement them. Right, it's what I call sham standards in the book, yeah. Um, two things on this. The first is, is that you can also have situations, and I think this is particularly where you've got institutional proliferation leading less rule-based governance, where um, the great powers disagree, and they're trying to promote different sets of rules, conflicting sets of rules. And I think you see this, you know, in the book I talk about this with the GMO case, genetically modified organisms, where it's very clear the U.S. is trying to put forward a set of, you know, promulgate a set of regulations that it suggests there's no reason to treat genetically modified foods differently from the set of, you know, the naturally grown foods. Um, you know, that they should be subject to the exact same health and safety regulations. As opposed to the EU, which is trying to promulgate this norm of the precautionary principle that says, we don't know. Therefore, we need to regulate these, these goods differently. Um, and as a result, what you're seeing is both, you know, of these powers are trying to sign these, you know, competing, you know, sets of agreements with other countries. And they're also trying to both capture international different sets of international organizations. So in the case of GMOs, the U.S. can obviously use the WTO because the WTO norm, you know, and the Codex Alimentarius Commission, um, which is the, the chief promulgating body for scientific standards for food, um, you know, says the U.S. is right. The EU response has been to create the Cartagena Protocol to try to get the precautionary principle enshrined in as many different UN treaties as possible to try to say, no, 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 there's this competing norm that we've got to deal with. Um, so as a result, you know, you're seeing these, these states competing for that. If you see a shift to a more multipolar world, it would not shock me if you've got China deciding that they're going to create their own sets of standards that shock, you know, benefits their domestic situation more as well. Um, so partly what's going on is that in situations where the great powers disagree, I think, you know, that'll lead to even more proliferation. But then to get back to, the, I think, the answer I gave Alex is that even if, even if the great powers are trying to come up with rules that betress, you know, older rules, I think the way they do it, intentionally or unintentionally, winds up leading to more fragmentation of law than reinforcement of old law. I guess that's the point I'm trying to, you know, that I think in the end the fragmentation effect has been underestimated in the literature. Rick? Yeah. I feel like your tail's wagging the 
inclined to comply, they wouldn't be proliferating. And all the proliferation then becomes a behavioral indicator, basically, of the breakdown of the decision to comply, but not its cause. Um, you'll be happy to know that an OSU student, Yoram Haftel, actually asked me this question you know, when I presented elsewhere, which I thought was a good question. I think the answer is, is I've got two. I mean, I think there, there are multiple causal explanations for what's going on. One possibility is that you've got, you just have institutional proliferation regardless. In other words, it's not that the great powers are creating you know, new institutions. This is sort of almost a John Meyer you know, expansive structuration story, that it's going to happen no matter what. But in the end, when you have clashes of interests, states will be strategic in terms of exploiting you know, this institutional proliferation no matter what. So that's one way this can happen. In other words, it's not conscious initially. It's an evolutionary process. But when a situation happens where there's divergence of interest, you are going to see a great power exploit you know, potential conflicts and rules. The second kind of story, though, is that, in fact, it is a conscious strategy, that a great power will take a look at the existing set of rules, decide we don't like them, we are therefore going to proliferate ourselves. We're going to engage in new you know, rule creation, or we're going to resuscitate dormant institutions that no one had previously cared about. And there are times where you can even have a, great, you know, a, a collection of great powers decide to do this. This happened in the case of financial codes and standards, where you know, the US, both the, US, you know, the G7 states were not happy with the existing set of financial regulations. To create new ones, they created this financial stability forum. The problem is, is that in doing that, you wind up, the problem is, is that international institutions don't die all that much. And so as a result, you know, institutions, you know, wind up, you know, continuing to live on. And furthermore, if one source of legitimacy, which we, you know, we didn't talk about, is simple history. You know, an institution that's been around longer is, you know, might often acquire greater legitimacy just by the fact that it survived. In the end, you're going to have clashes over time, I guess, is the, the, the thing that I think is going to happen. Because institutions don't disappear, and because rules don't necessarily disappear, their eventual proliferation and the eventual emergence of a conflict of interest will, will cause less compliance. Now, the way in which my story might be falsified, and this you know, might go to, to Alex and Jennifer a little bit, is that if the rules wind up reinforcing each other so much that you actually have a norm cascade such that norms get, you know, get so internalized that it would never occur to states that they should exploit these gaps, then I'd be wrong. That would be one. That would be one way in which this could potentially happen, and and, and you know you could have proliferation. And in fact, the proliferation would be a good thing. I'm not enough of a constructivist to believe that's going to happen. And in fact, I think it's. I think this is one way in which the Trips uh, case is a good one, because it was a case where you thought there was going to be a norm cascade, i.e., it's bad that people die from AIDS because drugs are so expensive, and yet it hasn't happened. I mean, this would be a case that, like, let's say, you know, Margaret Keck and Catherine Sickick would have predicted or Finnemore and Sikink would have predicted should have gone forward. And yet, if anything, there's been a reverse since 2001. Alex? Um, a couple of quick comments. One, I wonder if, to some extent, form shopping could just be self-limiting. Um, because if great powers engage in it too much, if they just sort of uh, move amongst different institutions sort of in an ad hoc, a way that looks ad hoc, or that's sort of willy-nilly or purely based on convenience, then wouldn't that have the effect of then they wouldn't be able to capture any of the advantages of coming across as being multilateral or as having their hands tied. So mm -hmm. for all the reason, for some of the reasons that the institutionalists said institutions were important to begin with, if great powers engaged in too much form shopping, they wouldn't be able to get any of those benefits. So to some extent, it seems like there'd be a cap on it. I'm not saying it wouldn't happen, but then yeah. at least it, it would be limited. Um, that's just sort of, sort of a comment. Um, second point I wanted to make. 
sort of a counter argument to your point that proliferation um, could benefit great powers, um, especially your specific point about the weakening of legal obligation. Mm. It seems to me in a landscape that's sort of weakly institutionalized, or we, where you have, say, one institution instead of many, or you have one sort of weak institution instead of one highly legalized institution, it seems like great powers would have a lot of excuses not to act multilaterally. So let me give you a couple examples. One would be something like U.S. trade policy in the late 80s. So the U.S. is yeah. arguing, look, there are a lot of issues that GAAP just doesn't deal with very well. Therefore, we're going to act unilaterally, but we have a good excuse. Right. And the rest of the world sort of says, okay, well, I can kind of see what, you know, some people say, I can see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas then compare that to today, where you have a really robust WTO and you have NAFTA, so you look at a case like softwood lumber, the U.S. cannot make an argument that it shouldn't act multilaterally because there are, there are many fora available. Um, so it's more costly for the U.S. to act unilaterally in today's environment than in the 1980s. Hmm. Or if you look at a case like uh, COSPO in 1999, if the Security Council were the only option, the U.S. could say, look, we wanted to go to the Security Council, the Russians wouldn't go along, so now we're going to act unilaterally. But in fact, in reality, the U.S. didn't have that excuse because it had another option, NATO. So at least in, in these cases where there's institutional proliferation, it's harder for a great power to make an argument that it has no choice but to act unilaterally because there are many options. And the rest of the world can see this and say, well, you know, you have no excuse. You've got to choose one of these four, at least. First of all, I note that hasn't seemed to stop the Bush administration. Um, you know, I mean, to, to respond to your second point, I mean, Bush administration has been perfectly willing to act unilaterally, even in areas where there might have existed for where they could go forward. But and my point then is, in today's environment, that's very costly. That is very costly. Okay, that's, yeah, I'll take that. If you don't have options, you can kind of, the rest of the world says, well, I can kind of see what you're saying. You didn't really have any options. Possible. I mean, the question then becomes, is it that big of a distinction if they can't, you know, in other words, if, it, if the United States invades Grenada, in 1983 and claims, no, we didn't go to the Security Council, but we went to the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, and they backed us, which is what happened, you know. Then is it all that, you know, in other words, it's a very small epsilon then between acting unilaterally or acting with an organization that essentially is in your back pocket. So, I mean, and that's, you know, really the difference, again, between here and here. So I'm willing to acknowledge that that exists. I guess the point is I'm not sure if it's, you know, how significant that difference is. Um, well, can I comment on that before? Sure, yeah. But that's sort of uh, the nice thing about proliferation, because the rest of the world knows what the options are, right? You know, the U.S., did the U.S. go to the Security Council? No. Did the U.S. go to the OECS? Oh, I see. No. Did the U.S. go to the OECS? Yes. Did the U.S. do it unilaterally? No, not quite. So then it allows the rest of the world to sort of gauge exactly how multilateral this Whereas if it were just security council or nothing, then it's hard to know what to infer from a non-security council action. No but, other okay, but then that gets to the problem of how you define whether or not other, like smaller multilateral fora are legitimate or not. For example, you can argue that the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States had a vested interest in what was going on in Grenada since it was, after all, their neighboring states, even if we might smile, you know, in terms of whether or not they're truly legitimate. You know, and again, you're right, NATO would obviously be considered a relatively powerful body vis-a-vis, um, you know, even, you know, even again relative to the, the, the European Union, but there might have been smaller, you know, multilateral bodies, you know, the Black Sea Economic Region. You can think of others where you could, you know, you could decide, well, now they're going to have a military function as well. So I take your point about that this might make things more transparent. 
But again, if you've got prolifer eventually if you have sufficient proliferation, I think you, you, even if everything's transparent, you still have an o information overload that makes it tough to determine what among a whole, you know. It's like, trying to, it's like trying to talk about chess. In theory, there's a finite number of strategies for chess, and therefore, in game theoretically, you could, the you know, mathematically, it should be possible to solve the optimal move for chess. However, there's so many different possible moves that it can't be done. Um, my worry is that if you have sufficient amounts of institutional proliferation, you can have the same thing there. I mean, it's not quite the same as chess, but you get my point. Um, to get back to your first comment, which I, I, I take, which is, is form shopping self-limiting, you know, is it too nakedly optimistic? I think you're right. And actually, this is one of the things I forgot to mention that happens in the TRIPS case. Part of the reason the U.S., you know, the EU don't form shop TRIPS is because they got TRIPS into the Uruguay round in the first place through form shopping. It was originally under the regulation of WIPO. Um, and the reason they shifted it to the WTO was because they liked the stronger dispute settlement understanding. So I agree with you. There are limits. But one way in which I think those can be overcome and we, you know, I haven't really talked about is domestic politics, which is if you have one government replace another government, it's going to be pretty easy for the new government to say, yeah, you know what that old government said? I don't agree with that. And so I want, the, you know, I want to shift this to position X. And so I, I think there are other ways in which, you know, if you go below the state, that it'll be possible for governments to justify form shopping in a way that wouldn't necessarily damage their reputation. Um, wait, you asked a question already, right? Is there anyone else? Okay. So you're really making, I mean, this is a discursive argument. You're saying that the original victory to get TRIPS accepted within the WTO was, was a huge victory. But oddly enough, the fact that the developing countries decided, well, we've got to talk about this in the language of intellectual property within the WTO, even if we get the waiver, we still are acknowledging at some level that this is appropriate to talk about as trade-related. No, I mean, I mean Oh. Oh, I see. Not 
Well, first of all, the issue is taken up by a lot of these organizations. They don't just scenario. Yeah, but they granted that in 1994, and then they tried not to grant it in 2001. And they, you know, they, you could argue they came close to succeeding. But I mean, there's another issue here, which is even the United States acknowledged. I mean, partly what was going on between 94 and 2001 is that it was just simple awareness of what the AIDS, you know, epidemic was doing in sub-Saharan Africa. And I mean, I think you know, Charlene Barshevsky admitted as much, in, you know, at one point saying, "Yeah, we didn't really even think about how this was going to impact." Sub-Saharan African countries until you know groups like ACT UP came. And another issue, and I talk about this in the book, is there was also a securitization point, which is it began to be the case that the Clinton administration thought about this as a security issue as well, which is they began to realize, wait a minute, if we actually allow this epidemic to continue, it's going to completely, you know, it's going to lead to state collapse in a lot of parts of the world. And state collapse was a really big concern, if you remember, in the late 90s as well. So there was also partly an internalization among the great powers of okay, we need to have some kind of exception. The debate has always been over the extent of the exception and the extent to how explicit it should be. Um, and in that sense, there's still disagreement, obviously. Oh, we have time for probably one or two more questions. I've exhausted them. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Dan. You don't have to clap again. And thanks you all. Thank you all for coming. You'll be hearing from us about the next uh, installment in the GIES series. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Oh, the, you mean the curve? No, I mean it's just it's such a nice way to encapsulate it. Yeah. Hey, great to see you. God, it's been ages. Are you here? Are you just here? Remember? Uh, yeah, for uh, fellowship for okay. the rest of the year. But um, you're such a good writer. It's, it's, it's such a joy to read you. It's very clear. You I remember what? that from the first paper I read of yours. Like, oh, I read Laura Miller.